This is Katie in Paris, a little croaky this morning. I may have had a few drinks last night. We're just going to have to deal with it. Luckily, the other half of this podcast is bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Aren't you, Dominic? I am fris and frautig, as they say in the Netherlands. Fresh and fruity. Fresh and fruity. Yeah, I'm always a bit like grossed out by that. But, la, la. but uh, yeah, I'm doing fine. How how was your evening, Katie? My evening was great. I probably haven't got around to telling you all this, but I'm changing jobs at AFP. I've got a new job focusing on the very fun subject of fake news or disinformation, to use my own personal preferred term. So yeah, I just had my leaving drinks last night from the Bureau de Paris where I've been working for the last year and a half, covering Macron and French politics and French society. I'm very sad to leave my current office, but I'm going to be debunking stuff for a living, which is cool. So rest assured, listeners, this podcast is going to be even more rigorous than before. And Dominic, you've got to watch out because I'm going to be fact-checking everything you say. Oh, goodness. I'm glad you're there to help me out. You're welcome. But um, what's been happening on your end? Uh, What has been happening on my end? I... Oh, the opera that you came to see me in in Berlin was nominated for an award. Yay! The one that you were a creepy doctor in. Exactly, yeah. Usher at the Berlin Staatsoper was nominated for Best World Premiere in the International Opera Awards, which was a very nice thing to wake up to. And I was there. You were there. It's probably because you were there that it got nominated. It was the energy you were sending us. I think so. That's excellent news. But we have a great show for you this week in which we will have our youngest ever guest, Lily Platt, a 10-year-old who has been amongst the many children in Europe who are skipping school or school striking in protest against government inaction against climate change. We'll be talking to Lily and then we'll be speaking also to Laure Briot from Transparency International about the much criticised phenomenon of the so-called golden visas in Europe. So we'll be chatting to Lily and Laure later in the show, but for now, let's move into Commemoration Corner. Oh, I was worried that you wouldn't have one this week because I didn't see any big anniversaries. What you got for me? Okay, yeah, it's a uh, it's a little bit niche. Um, <laughs> it's the four hundred twenty fifth anniversary of the death of the great Italian composer Palestrina. How do you even know that? I found this amazing list online that like lists deaths <laughs> and you can work out like the anniversary. And I literally think no one is celebrating this other than us because when I googled it, there were no articles about it or anything. And four hundred twenty fifth May sound like a rather obscure centenary but I feel we should take every opportunity to celebrate this genius of church music. Palestrina was a renaissance composer from Italy and he's most famous for being arguably the best writer of polyphony. Do you know what polyphony is Katie? No but I'm sure you can tell me. Well I'll try. It's a musical texture when there are two or more lines of music played or sung. Musical texture? On top of each other so you know you have like at least two different melodies being sung on top of each other, which usually relate to each other, and they create a beautiful dynamic texture and interesting harmonic shifts. God, my music professors would be ashamed of me right now. (laughs) And hey, if you don't know what polyphony is, then just listen to some Palestrina on Spotify. I personally love it. Maybe listen to the beginning of Missa Papa Marcelli, and if that doesn't calm you down, then I don't know what will. Um, I've just Googled him. Not really relevant, but he was quite handsome. Was he? Yeah, have a look now. Oh, oh yeah. 
He really was. Put him in like a leather jacket instead of a 16th century smock. And you've got like a first class hottie, I think. Nice beard. Yeah, really nice beard. It's quite fashionable. And also the jacket he's wearing is quite Versace. (laughs) Trust you to objectify the 425-year-old man. Oh, no, he's older than that. The 500-year-old man. If anyone can do it, it's me. I should also say, Katie, that we missed an important commemoration last week. Our 50th full episode. Happy 50th episode to us. Oh, yeah, we did. Well done, us. Happy birthday. Bon anniversaire. Who's it been a good week for, Katie? Good week this week goes to a 19-year-old singer named Bilal Asani, who has just been named France's contestant for a little event that we're rather fond of on this podcast, Eurovision. I was debating whether or not I should be openly rooting for one candidate on this show, Dominic. Like, this is a pan-European podcast, after all, and I haven't seen all the candidates yet. But for now, I'm going to nail my flag to the wall. What's the expression? Colours to the mask. Colours to the mask. Colours to the mask. I'm going to nail my colours to the mask and uh, say that I suspect I'm going to be voting for France this year. Uh, Bilal is a pretty special contestant. He's 19 years old, queer and proud of it. He's from a Moroccan family and he's being held up as a really positive role model for LGBT young people in France and elsewhere. Uh, He's been a YouTuber for a few years and he's got a pretty massive following, like 800,000 people, I think. And if you read the comments, you'll often see one saying like, thank you so much. You're the person who's taught me that I can just be me and be proud to be me and stuff like that. And it's really nice. I also really like his YouTube channel in general, actually, because he's pretty funny. And he has this little catchphrase, Bonsoir Paris, which he sings at the beginning of every one. And he even released a video of himself singing that in 21 languages. So here's a little clip. Bonsoir Paris, yeah. Good evening Paris, yeah. Buenas tardes Paris, yeah. Guten Abend Paris, yeah. It's not all sunshine and light though. Uh, Bilal has obviously, like quite a lot of young gay people out there on the internet, received a lot of hate mail. There's two gay rights groups in France. They've been counting every single hate message that he's got, every single homophobic or racist message. And they've counted 1,500 so far and they're actually taking everyone that sends one of these messages to court to try and campaign against this. Bilal has been kind of taking it in his stride. He said that the best response to all the haters out there is the fact that he has been named France's entry for Eurovision this year. So he's managing to do a pretty good positive job of it really. Wow he sounds like he's doing an amazing job and I'm sorry he has to put up with that. The internet is a pretty horrible place some of the time. It is. But Katie I don't mean to break it to you but do you know nothing about Eurovision? You cannot vote for France. You live in France. Oh, shit. Is that true? Yeah. Have you ever watched it? <laughs> no, but last time last time I watched it, I watched it with you in Amsterdam. So uh, I guess I can't actually remember who I voted for last year. No, last year I was in Munich. You went with me. That was two years ago. We were in Amsterdam. I'm getting old. I'm forgetting things. But hang on. So I'm not French national. So does that matter? Well, if you happen to make yourself in London, then you could vote for France. Okay, I'm going to try and be out of the country on, when is it? May? So that I can vote for Bilal. Vote for Bilal! Who's it been a bad week for? It's been a bad week for food safety in Europe and particularly the residents of Romania, Sweden, Hungary, Estonia, Finland, France, Spain, Lithuania, Portugal and Slovakia. That's a lot of places. These are the 11 states to which some pretty nasty meat has been imported and they're trying to find it. Basically what happened is 2,700 kilograms of fraudulently slaughtered meat has been exported from Poland to these previously mentioned EU countries. 
merely a fraction of the total 9,500 kilograms that was found to have been fraudulently slaughtered at a single abattoir in Poland following a really shocking investigation by the Polish news program Supervisor, who infiltrated the slaughterhouse and witnessed members of staff being forced to mark rotten meat as safe. Um, they also had this really gruesome practice of dragging sick cows who were no longer able to walk to their slaughter and deliberately slaughtering at night so that their practices would go unnoticed. Now, under EU law, almost all of this is not allowed and, in fact, a cow needs to be checked by a vet before slaughter. And this all seemed not to be happening. So the EU have said that the suspect meat is being withdrawn and destroyed and the rapid alert system for food and feed has been triggered, snappily known as RASF. Say that again? RASF. Do people actually call it that? Or is that just you? No, I, it just, I liked an article I read. It was like rapid alert system for food and feed in open brackets, R-A-S-F-F. It's the least punchy acronym I've ever heard of. Um, anyway, it informs member states of the recalls and urges them to take swift action. So fingers crossed they sort this all out as quickly as possible. It's a real reminder of the horse meat scandal back in 2013. Yeah. Do you remember when it like turned out the loads of the beef that we we're eating in like our microwave lasagnas was actually horse meat? And... In a similar way, like this meat just spread across Europe so fast because our trade is so integrated, which is a good thing, I guess, except when there's like really dodgy meat involved. Yeah. Oh, God, the horse meat scandal was horrible because then it just turned out that it was like in everything. I mean, all of this is quite a good incentive to eat less meat. Like, can you imagine a vegetarian scandal like this? Like, hundreds of carrots across Europe have been mislabeled as potatoes. Like, it's quite nice to know that that can't happen. Yeah, or if you do eat meat, Eat locally sourced meat. Yes. Unless you live near the abattoir in Poland. <laughs> oh, God. Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. It's very serious. <laughs> we are now going to call up a pretty extraordinary 10-year-old girl. Lily Platt has been doing school strikes every Friday for the last 21 Fridays. And she's part of a really growing European movement of children skipping school to protest against the inaction around climate change. But Lily isn't only skipping school. I was talking about the grandma in Britain last week who picks up plastic every day. Lily also has a program of picking up plastic, Lily's Plastic Pickup. And she's become a bit of a celebrity in the Netherlands. So we're pretty lucky that Lily was willing to talk to us on her Saturday morning with her mum, Eleanor. But we wanted to find out about how she started doing this and why. You've been protesting now, I think, for 20 weeks. Um, Is that right? Yes. 21 weeks. Okay. And why are you protesting? It's so that the politicians will listen and so that all governments and world leaders will align from the Paris Agreement and keep to the 1.5 of global warming temperatures and um, and to lower emissions. But school straight is serious. This is for the climate, for nature, for the future, for the animals, for the planet. You're only 10 mm-hmm. and it's your generation that's going to have to live with the effects of climate change, isn't it? Yes. What's the point of learning if the older generation is taking our future away? It's taking the um, one generation's future away. How has your school responded to this? Have they been supportive? 
Well, I think that it's good. They have been quite supportive because my school is sort of um, a nature school and um, and it's a really good school. Ah, lucky. Just to be clear, you're only on strike for an hour on Fridays. Yeah. What do you do in that hour? Usually lots of people come. Sometimes it's just me and my mum and my grandpa. And sometimes it's quite a lot of people. And we sit down on right next to the government house um, in, in Zeiss, which is the town where we live. And we hold up signs that, that say school striking for the climate. There's no planet B, stuff like that. But you also met yes. Greta, didn't you? You also yeah. started yes. because of Greta. How it started was because when I saw a video of her, she was talking about the Paris Agreement and what the old generation is doing to the planet. I just thought, okay, I have to do this. So that same week, that was my first school strike. So this is Greta Thunberg, who's the Swedish girl who's got a lot of publicity for striking. Have you actually ever spoken to Greta? Have you been in touch with her? Yes, and on my third school strike, she went to Den Haag and we talked about um, the peak of power of climate change that we can't let climate change reach its peak of power. What is this peak of power? Um, that's when all elements of climate change, like deforestation, pollution, global warming and melting ice caps and rising sea levels, will all become too powerful and then you actually can't stop it. You live in a very flat country, Lily, the Netherlands. Yeah. That's pretty bad, isn't it? Because if the sea levels are going up, that's going to be bad for countries like yours. Yeah, then we'll all have to wear big boots. (laughs) Then we'll all have to wear boots. We'll all have to have swimming lessons and very long boots. (laughs) How did you end up in the Netherlands? You're half Dutch, are you? Yes, I'm 50% Dutch. And we moved here from the north of London in 2014, December the 21st. How did you get this passion for looking out of the environment? Have you always been interested in nature? Yeah, I've always been interested with environment, animals and learning about the animals. And I wanted to protect it. Every single thing of nature, I wanted to protect it. So in 2015, when me and my grandpa walking to McDonald's and this was when I couldn't speak Dutch very well so so I decided to count all of the pieces of plastic that were along the road to McDonald's and we counted 91 pieces and that's a lot for only 15 to 20 minutes of walking from my house to McDonald's that's a lot and my grandpa then told me that everything that falls on the ground will somehow make its way to the ocean. It might take a day, might take a week, might take a month, even a year, but it will somehow make its way to the ocean. So you started picking it up? Yeah, and that was how my initiative Lilith Fast Pickup began. And in summer of 2017, Lilith Fast Pickup was just everywhere mm-hmm. because then came the local newspaper, then the national newspaper, and then Q Music, that's a morning radio station called us. And then my grandpa sort of made a joke that, oh, next thing you know, the TV is going to come. Funny thing is, this program called Hot Fun Nailon came at one o'clock in the afternoon that day. <laughs> What a coincidence. What a coincidence. And so what's it been like becoming a bit of a public figure? Do you mind the attention? Yes, because then more and more people know about class pollution and climate change so that more and more people can do something about it. 
Eleanor, you must be really proud of her. Well, I am very proud. It's, everything seems to it comes out of from her heart. I think she has a green heart because yes. it's all for the for the planet and for animals, and we just um, support her. Mm-hmm. Um, and when she did have to uh, go on school strike, obviously staying away from school is not something that you can say. You know, this is sort of really great. But we looked through the law to see how to do it. We spoke with the school, and the school support Lily, mm-hmm. and so everything mm-hmm. sort of is done uh, in the correct way, which is what we sort of recommend um, for everyone. Yeah. And then we just go there. And then we just stand and we, we, we support her. Lily, I've got one uh, final question for you from me. How have your friends at school reacted to the protest? Do they, did they understand immediately why you were doing it? Well, I did um, tell them why. And the first time I did school straight, they were so excited and, and ready to do this. <laughs> we even made a whole list of people that they wanted to come for a school strike. <laughs> but when I usually do school strike, um, almost um, no children come to my strikes. Well, in Holland, it's quite yes, difficult because, because of, they have a very strict educational rules that people have to stick with. But next Thursday is a huge school strike in Holland and I think there'll be several thousand students coming so it's all over the news now mm-hmm. and the papers are saying Lily's the they call her the Coppest uh, Klimat Spybala so she's the stubbornest climate striker of Holland because she did it for 20 weeks uh, 21. 21 weeks now Lily thank you so much for joining us today actually I just wanted to use this as an opportunity to test Dominic's Dutch because he lives in the Netherlands. We have quite a lot of listeners in the Netherlands, actually. So, do you have a quick message for them in Dutch? Well, it's um, it's weiniger CO2 and weiniger fossil olie gebruiken in auto's and weiniger plastic gebruiken and meer gebruikbaar. Meer gebruikbaar plastic. Yeah, meer gebruikbaar spullen. Yeah. And weiniger plastic. She's talking about how we need to use less oil in the car, get less gasoline, less single-use plastics. I can speak Dutch, Katie. Oh, that's really good i'm really impressed ik verstaan je wel you can find lily on facebook at lily's plastic pickup that's lily with two l's we will post a link in our show notes and um, i wanted to also give a shout out to one of our listeners hannah reynert in belgium hannah actually wrote to us weeks ago saying heads up i think this is a thing like thousands of kids are skipping class to protest so thank you so much hannah for doing that uh, but we're now going to go from heroes like lily to villains in the form of tax launderers and uh, dodgy oligarchs we're going to talk about golden visas so just to fill you in basically over the last decade a bunch of countries in europe have been selling residency and citizenship to their country bit of a weird thing to do i don't know how do you feel about it dominic Uh, yeah i find it pretty horrible that if you're rich you can buy your way into a country and people who are really in need and need a place of safe haven have a much harder time yeah it's an odd thing but when you look at the numbers it's kind of obvious why countries have been doing it law who we're about to speak to in october she wrote a massive report about these golden visas by her count european countries have made about 25 billion euros by setting residency and passports over the last decade Uh, so you can kind of see why they do it this has been a hot topic in europe over the last week or so because the eu basically came out and said if you're going to sell citizenship to your countries please try and make sure it's only nice rich people coming in rather than like criminal kingpins And there's been a sense for years that various countries have not really been asking enough questions when handing out visas to people who can pay for it. Law works at the anti-corruption group Transparency International. We felt like she was a perfect person to talk to about these golden visas and we gave her a ring in Brussels. (laughs) 
when did this become a thing? Like, when did European countries start effectively selling residency and even passports to rich people? So the phenomenon was a bit older in regions like the Caribbeans and uh, in the US, where it all started in the 80s. But for European uh, countries, the phenomenon is a bit more recent. It all started in uh, 2008 as a quick fix to the crisis, a way to just quickly recover from uh, the financial uh, bust. And uh, it's interesting to note that the most aggressive and competitive programs are from countries that were most hardly hit by the crisis. So we're Mm -hmm. talking about Spain, Greece, Malta, Cyprus, Latvia. And do we know exactly how helpful these schemes have been for these countries that were suffering after the crisis? It's hard to uh, have estimates on the, the investment that has been generated. And it's actually a bit dubious how positive the impact has been. You also have to look, for example, at the socioeconomic costs for the average citizen living in Lisboa, for example, because the market prices in the city and other cities uh, have been skyrocketing. And these programs, they actually require, in exchange for an investment, very often in real estate, they will offer you a passport or a residence permit. So it has also an impact on real estate and on the capacity of like the average citizen to find uh, housing in, in cities like Lisboa. Islands like Malta or Cyprus, the investment generated for the schemes can be quite substantial. Can you paint us a little portrait of the kind of people that apply for these visas? I, mean, I guess there's more than a few kind of Russian oligarchs in there. Yeah, so it's wealthy individuals, obviously, because the entry ticket for for the EU is between 250,000 euros in countries like Latvia or Greece and can go as up as uh, 2 million euros for getting a passport in uh, Cyprus, for example. So it's wealthy individuals, sometimes politically exposed person, uh, meaning that they have like political connections in uh, the country of origin. What we saw uh, in in terms of top nationalities for the schemes, it, it will vary from one country to the other. Uh, for example, for Portugal, you will also have uh, people from Angola or Brazil due to like historical connection with those countries. But in majority, we'll have Chinese people, Russian and uh, Middle Eastern countries. What we observed as well is that insufficient controls are made on applicants, security vetting checks. There have been a couple of recent scandals where some people that had some criminal backgrounds, like had been granted a visa or a passport. So when you're talking about profiles, you also have some criminals and corrupt individuals getting uh, getting those kind of passports. I'm not saying it's the majority, but uh, that's why we actually started looking at this issue. And so what these people are looking for, it's not citizenship rights or residency rights. It's really mobility. They want to be able to continue to do their illicit business anywhere in the world. And by providing them with, uh, with a new passport, we're giving them the means to do so. I imagine it varies from country to country, but what exactly are the checks in place to make sure that the money that you're taking in for one of these residency applications or passport applications doesn't come from like a drug cartel or that it's been stolen from taxpayers in whatever country? What are the checks? That's a really good question. And and the information is hard to find because you get what's on paper and then there's what's actually done. And sometimes you've got some discrepancies here Mm. in Cyprus or in Portugal. What's on paper is only that the authorities have to check on the criminal record of the person, which is clearly not enough because uh, for high-risk profiles like applicants to this kind of schemes, you would need to check business connections, you would need to check the origins of the funds that are used for the investment, 
the source of wealth uh, in general because it's likely that these persons are, are quite smart. It's likely that they won't use dirty money to actually make the, the investment to get the passport or the, or the residence permit. So the EU Commission released a report with some suggestions of what countries should do to change these practices and they criticised a lot of the countries. But um, do you think the report was strong enough? They reached the same conclusion as we did. So I think on the assessment, we are pretty much aligned. The problem is in terms of solution, what was proposed by the Commission doesn't really go far enough. It was a bit weak. The proposal was to focusing first on transparency and exchange of information, which is really important. It's part of the solution. But we believe uh, that should go further. We really need to have harmonized standards defined at EU level because the applicants or those that want to cheat the system are actually thriving on this lack of harmonization. And it encourages a passport shopping behavior from applicants that will look for the lowest bid. Um, Just speaking purely theoretically here, Law, if I was a non-European criminal mastermind, like what would be the easiest country to get into right now? <laughs> Actually, there are big players in the golden visa industry like Henland Partners or Arten who are really good at making rankings of countries where you can get in the fastest way the most benefits. Like depending on what your criteria are, actually, if you want a cheap one or if you want to get one quickly. Uh, we see trends of some countries kind of strengthening their security checks on applicants. We saw that with the UK, with Latvia as well. But then we also see other trends of countries going towards lightening up the controls. Greece in fall last year lightened up the criteria for investment. And then we have also another example in Portugal where normally you have to renew your permit every year. And then uh, they decided that they would lift this uh, money monitoring and, and uh, renewal uh, obligation because they're completely overwhelmed by requests. Each different country that has a kind of golden visa scheme offers something different and it seems like the ones that give you most full level of citizenship were Malta, Cyprus and up until now Bulgaria. Do you think those three programs deserve like greater condemnation because they're offering full citizenship or do you think in reality it doesn't make much difference because often a residence permit can give you power to travel around as well? In many of, the, of these programs, after a few years, you become actually eligible for a passport. This is the case in Portugal, for example. Like I would treat them in the same way in terms of like setting standards for those. Uh, but there is definitely the question of whether EU citizenship should be treated as a commodity and uh, be just up for sale. Yeah, I have to confess, you know, this wasn't an issue that was at all across my radar. Like these migrants are so invisible compared to refugees and other kinds of migrants that you see photograph crossing borders and stuff. Like I, I guess money buys you the luxury of anonymity. But um, it's been really great to talk to someone who actually knows all about it. So thank you so much. I read one really shocking story about the golden visas. This guy, uh, Sergei Adoniev, who's a Russian telecoms billionaire who got one of these golden visas in Bulgaria. He got that despite the fact that he'd been convicted in the US 20 years ago on fraud charges and there were like archives of the fact that he was sought on Interpol, like really easy to find that he had a really bad criminal record and yet they still gave it to him. So clearly there's something wrong and these countries need to get that act together, please. Please. Uh, If you would like to read Law's report, we will post a link to it. You'll see it there in the show notes.
I found my happy ending on my Facebook wall this week. Can you believe it? It's from my own classical music social media bubble. So let's talk about me for a second. Now, in some ways, I'm very lucky that I'm a singer. My instrument is my voice. I don't need any equipment. This is sometimes annoying because it means that if I go out to a noisy party and have to shout or want to drink, I can't just leave my equipment at home. And as my body is my instrument, I didn't expect this to sound as new age as it is sounding. Um, But anyway, often I'm jealous of instrumentalists getting to leave their instruments at home when they go out to have fun. But when I heard the tale of Gala Lozinska, I realized how lucky I am. Gala is a Czech cellist living in Amsterdam who had her cello stolen in Amsterdam on January the 10th. No. Yeah. String instruments are incredibly valuable and a loss like this can be financially devastating, but also emotionally devastating because of the connection people have with the specific instrument that they play every day. Mm -hmm. Each instrument has a unique sound and personality and it can take a long time to find the right connection between a player and an instrument. Is it a bit like Harry Potter, you know, like the one chooses the wizard kind of thing I knew you were gonna ask that <laughs> like specifically that reference I, yeah I literally I nearly wrote mention that it's similar to Harry Potter and I was like no Katie Katie will bring this up for me it's fine <laughs> we know each other too well Anyway, Gala posted on Facebook with photos of her stolen cello and asked everyone to spread the word and like send it around to local music shops and just to look out for the cello. And guess what? It worked. A few days ago, Gala received a call from Tom van Berkel, the owner of a music shop, Humper and van Berkel in Amsterdam. And he had received a photo of the cello that someone was trying to sell and immediately recognised it as Gala's cello. He enticed the thief to his shop with the cello, saying he was interested in buying it. And once the thief arrived, Tom secured the cello and told the thief that he knew whose cello this was and they were on camera. The thief ran away and Gala got her cello back. Oh my God, amazing. Isn't that amazing? So Gala posted this story on Facebook a few days ago, thanking the community for spreading the word and helping reunite her with her cello. We were talking about the awful side of the internet earlier with Bilal, but actually sometimes the internet can lead to amazing things we've got to go but before we do we'd like to thank a few extra special people who have supported us on patreon this week hans lamers beerta steinberg drew santini marie france pete and juan from the i rather be in paris podcast this could be you having your name shouted out at the end of our episode and you could also get a personally recorded voicemail complete with Europeans podcast jingleage head over to patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast if you fancy helping us out a bit we'd be ever so grateful thank you so much I know a lot of you who like the show don't have any cash to spare you can support us in other ways you can tell your friends to listen and you can tell your legions of followers on social media to listen to we are on twitter at Europeans pod we're on instagram at Europeans podcast and on Facebook, just type in The Europeans Podcast. And also, we would love it if you would email us about stuff that's going on in your corner of Europe, just like Hannah did. We're very conscious that we've been sticking in the couple of weeks we've been back to the kind of western fringes of Europe. And we're hopefully going to be pushing back towards the centre and east and south in the next few weeks. If that is where you are and something interesting is going on there, let us know. Yes, please do. And also follow us on Instagram, Europeans Podcast. I did that. Did you? Yeah. I wasn't listening. <laughs> <laughs> in one ear and out the other thank you once again for listening we'll be back next week see you next week everyone have a great week ta bye